Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that neural impulses travel between 2 miles per hour and 250 miles an hour. The faster nerves are the ones that are covered in myelin, which is a fatty sheath that acts as an electrical insulator. And yes, you can hack your myelin. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guest is kind of famous because just recently there was a whole bunch written about how she used high-fat ancestral food techniques to change the nutrition of the Los Angeles Lakers. She's a board-certified family physician trained in biochemistry and genetics at Cornell and attended Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Now, if you're not into sort of medical fanboy kinds of behaviors, uh, basically those are some really good schools. Kate Shanahan is also author of Deep Nutrition, Why Your Genes Need Traditional Food, and another book called Food Rules. And as the director of uh, nutrition for the Lakers, she's kind of knows what she's doing. So Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Bulletproof. 
Oh, awesome. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it was amazing to see the article come out about what you're doing with the Lakers. I said, oh my goodness, I have to talk with Kate. So I appreciate you coming on the podcast just to share uh, what, what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, this has uh, been a big project for us. Uh, my husband and I actually are both involved with the Lakers, and we have a whole team in Los Angeles that's uh, constantly working to get these guys fed better. I've always been amazed how so many pro athletes fall into the you know pizza and beer sort of camp. I know I don't perform anywhere near the level I'm capable of if I live on any sort of diet like that. And, and there are so many, you know, really kind of some of the star athletes who really do just do crazy stuff to take care of themselves. Why is there such a disparity among pro athletes between like eating crap and beating yourself up with whatever drugs you can find that won't come up out on the screens and the other side, which is like, you know, clean living and pure power, like, like why the gap? Well, that, you know, it's a big question because a lot of, there's a lot of confusion in the whole nutrition world about what's healthy because of that very discrepancy that you just described, that some people mm-hmm. seem to be able to get away with complete bodily substance abuse. And, and some people really have to toe the line perfectly or, or they pay for it. And we talk about that actually in our book, Deep Nutrition, because it's got to do with what their genes are getting in relationship to what their genes expect. So the whole concept of genetic expectation is kind of a super important one in terms of understanding how to be healthy. And to put it simply, our gene, when we get sick, it's because that our genes have these expectations that were not met one too many times. And that goes back. So when we understand it from the genetic perspective, that helps us understand that we have to go back, not just to what we ate today or yesterday, but what we've been doing for the past years and decades, if we're that old, and (laughs) what our parents were doing. Because what they did and what our grandparents did or didn't do influences our health. And so when we have these star athletes that, you know, they're six foot 10 and perfect bodies and, you know, 6% body fat, and yet they eat 24, uh, you know, the equivalent of 24 Hershey's candy bars a day as, as Dwight Howard did, it just doesn't seem to add up. You, you have to ask, well, how can it matter? How can what you eat matter if that's, if that's the case? But the fact is that that does have a cost. It's just that it's not necessarily immediate, right? And in, in those people who have genes that have been well-nourished for generation after generation, it's like they've got a, a fortress that a, a fortress of health that has been built. Whereas some folks like myself, where, you know, my, my, uh, on my mom's side, there's Jewish ancestry and, and we've, you know, had been chased around Europe and not had uh, always access to good direct land and nutrition for, you know, thousands of years. And on my dad's side, the Irish folks with uh, various, you know, mm. potato famines and other right. things that have uh, just damaged the genes just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, you know, not enough to kill anybody, not enough to keep us from reproducing, but enough to make us more susceptible to problems. And so there you have the explanation for the whole difference in health disparity, the whole rainbow of uh, the spectrum of human health, where people are, you know, barely alive on on one end where, you know, they come out of the birth canal with uh, breathing problems and heart problems. And where on the other end, people are so extraordinarily healthy that in spite of the fact that they don't really get optimal nutrition, they can still perform at this extreme, impressive NBA type level. 
And, but it's only for a certain amount of time. And so what happens inevitably is that if you really do follow that, uh, you know, Domino's and Dorito diet, it's going to catch up with you. Maybe not, maybe when you're 18, you don't really feel it. But by the time you're 25 or 28, I guarantee that you will. And and what happened yeah. in the the case of Dwight Howard, which was you know pretty well publicized last year all over the news. So I'm not saying I'm not like spilling the beans on anything here. You know he had a really tough time coming back from his back surgery, and that back surgery surgery you can kind of look at it as the straw that broke the camel's back in his for on his fortress or the you know the stone that broke the fortress of what was his extremely excellent health the back surgery that he never quite healed from because he had persistent tingling in his fingers and toes and persistent back pain and it was really impairing in his performance and when we got him off of that 24 candy bar diet and onto an immediately onto an incredibly healthy diet which rarely happens that people can make such a 180 degree turnabout he said that he was feeling better within a week. And I had, I had promised him that if he didn't start to feel better, you know, start to notice some improvements in two weeks, that, that I would actually quit because I was so sure that he would, he would feel the benefits, at least some benefits. And that, that's really what it took to, to get him to listen because, you know, it takes a lot to break through decades of habits. Yeah and give up sugar in particular because it's so addicting. That was, a, that, that was almost a sure bet. I, I mean, anyone who's worked with this kind of nutrition knows that even like the most recalcitrant person, if they do it for a week, that there's going to be some improvement over like a pure sugar diet. It, it's, <laughs> it's inevitable, right? Were you at all worried when you made that bet? You know, uh, no, actually, because the, the, <laughs> I knew he would have to feel better. I knew he had the support in place to to do it because you know not not just anybody can turn their diet around like that he but fortunately he had a number of personal assistants and we had an excellent chef who was willing to help him and even whole foods market stepped up and of course to Dwight's credit he once he made up his mind, I, I could tell, you know, when I was talking to him that he really, really wanted to. He really okay. wanted to do it. And that he wasn't sure he could do it, but I was, I was very impressed actually by the end of the, you know, the week where everyone who I was speaking with to kind of gauge whether or not it was working, whether or not, you know, things had fallen into place. They said he was doing it, you know, and they all have these soft Southern drawls and they're like, oh yeah, he's, he's on with the program. And it was so nonchalant. <laughs> and I was like, so excited about it because it was to me it was like a huge a huge hurdle that he'd overcome you know a lot of people don't realize that sugar is an addicting substance sure yeah. we know that but we get started on it we get hooked on it in our childhood usually right so that our whole brains are wired around that sweet taste reinforcement and that happy feeling that we get when we have those sweet foods and the expectation of sweet foods at certain time periods, you know, like maybe after working out or before a game or something like that. And so to be able to give it up like that is, um, he definitely deserves a lot of credit for that. And, you know, on the one hand, I see after the article came out, and Ken Berger did a three-part series for CBSSports.com, and this uh, w the second part. Actually, no, that was a four-part series, and one part was devoted entirely to, to Dwight. And the comments on that article were like, "How could 
how could a professional level player treat his body like that? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. of course, like that's what they all do. Right. But, <laughs> but you know, so he was sort of the poster child for for you know too much sugar and an you know an athlete letting himself go that way. But on the other hand, I see him more as a poster child for you know turning around and and realizing that sugar really is a problem and making a statement about that because he he was very honest and open about that all last year during all the interviews and he said some pretty amazing things too like the fact that he got off sugar he said it's good for your genes and it's good for future generations which is all true but i was just so happy to hear that he had bought into it to that degree i was just about ready to cheer for that I went on uh, this program called The Joe Rogan Show the first time, and, and I mentioned, you know, if your mother's a vegan, your chances of having a high IQ are lower. Like, you actually might have lost IQ points because of that. And I've written wow. a book about epigenetics. Like, I'm not lying here. <laughs> and it's not a popular or easy thing to say, but I got flamed for a long time for that one. And it, it's not meant to be unkind. I tell you, I have... Uh, spina bifida, like the kind with no symptoms because my mom ate too much sugar and it depleted her folic acid levels and we have the genes that make us sensitive to folic acid levels, but epigenetics matters. So if what your grandmother ate and really what your grandfather ate and your mother and your father and you want to be a rock star or you know an NBA star, well, you know, let's hope it started a couple of generations ago and if you want your kids or grandkids to be NBA stars, you better you know put down the junk food and that's such a burden and it's such a pain, but it seems to be the way it is. Am I exaggerating things, Dr. Kate? No, you're definitely okay. spot on there. And the other thing that I, I like to blame, um, and you know, not my parents, but I blame uh, the substances themselves in addition to yeah. sugar is margarine, right? So, oh, yeah. You know, my, my mom was, you know, struggling mother. She, um, she, her husband, my dad, was going through medical school. They they had to live on fifty dollars a week. Of course, this was way back in the you know eighteen hundreds, so right. that was <laughs> a little bit more money. But um, you know, so so margarine was way cheaper than butter. So that's what we got, you know, and got loads of it, right? Because I, I I would spread it on everything on matzahs. I'd fry my bologna. I fried bologna on Wonder Bread and fried. Yeah. Me too. It's the worst thing. So, and and the reason that margarine is so awful, and uh, not just margarine, but all the vegetable oils that they make margarine out of, is because it promotes free radical formation, and free radicals can directly damage DNA directly, the same way that radiation can. Whereas sugar is a little more indirect. You know, it's sticky and it affects how sugar. Uh, I'm sorry, it affects how the enzymes function that are involved in the replication and accurate reproduction of DNA, but vegetable oil and stuff products made with vegetable oils it's like eating radiation so you know i wish wow (laughs) great analogy there (laughs) i wish there was a geiger counter that you know could evaluate the ability of a food product to produce this sort of edible radiation effect in your body because if there were things like french fries and potato chips they would they would be glowing like a little nugget out of chernobyl well, there there is a, a detector like that it's a really sensitive one and it's called your brain and if you are <laughs> used to feeling really good and you get into what i like to call the bulletproof state of high performance but where you're in the zone you're like man everything works like my skin isn't inflamed i feel great and i can do what i'm here to do and then you eat a bag of potato chips or you go get some fries at McDonald's and you look at how you perform the next hour, the next day, the next two, four, five days, you're going to realize that either you don't have a great sense of self-awareness, which is common for people, or 
really those french fries didn't serve you very well. And once you get there, you can start being really selective about how you're going to feel every day. There was a study actually that showed that the French fries really do have an absolutely immediate effect. And the study was evaluating the effect on the circulatory system. Oh, wow. And so what they did was they, they got French fries that were manufactured uh, from a restaurant at the end of the week so that they had the old oil, right? Oil needs yeah. to be changed every week. And of course, it, that's the law and not every restaurant <laughs> necessarily has the ability to follow the law to the letter. So anyway, after a week, the oil is going to be lo- so heat degraded. That's the problem with these yeah. oils is it gets degraded with heat, that there's all kinds of nasty chemicals in there. So they just fed um, healthy 18 to 20 four-year-olds french fries, just a regular like large portion of french fries. And then they evaluated the ability of the blood vessels, the arteries, to dilate in response to exercise. And they found that not only did they not respond in the way that a normal 18-year-old would respond to exercise, which is, you know, sometimes can almost like double the blood flow in the artery. There was no response, which is what like an 80 or 90-year-old person's arteries would do to exercise if they were out of shape. So this consumption of these these bad fats, it immediately has an immediate effect on your arteries and it lasted in some people for 24 hours. And so that means that you are in essence, if you have just one little thing of French fries, you're in essence aging your arteries for the next day. And if you do that every day, you're walking around with old arteries. Uh, that sounds pretty likely to me. I, my own effect or my own impact when, when I was a kid, I ate a lot of squeezed margarine because it was supposed to be healthier than butter, which is like one of the very most toxic ways you can take vegetable oil. And honestly, my parents spent extra on that because they cared about me. We, we were just terribly, terribly misinformed, right? Low fat diet with extra squeeze margarine. If you're going to have anything like what could be wrong with that? And <laughs> man, it, it trashed my brain. Beautiful but and bright. I used to get like uh, a lot of nosebleeds and like arterial problems and uh, even like uh, frequent bruising. And you could see that my blood vessels weren't doing very well. And in my case, there were other confounding factors. Like I lived in a basement that had some toxic molds, I figured out later, which also contributes to those. But just the diet high in those fats has that effect. And you can measure it. If you eliminate all omega-6 oils from your diet, or at least as many as you can, you're, you're still going to eat avocados. You won't, you won't ever fully eliminate them. But if you quit all of the processed oils, you even limit olive oil to just really fresh, really good stuff and don't overdose it. How long does it take in, in your experience working with patients before they feel the inflammatory effects go away? Is it a week? Is it five days? Is it two weeks? Well, it's all about momentum, right? With okay. the with the genetic stuff, and and so your body can recover, but it does depend on how much it's recovering from. You know, how much of a of a mound you have to crawl out from underneath. And so, if you have been really kind of abusing yourself for years, you know what I see is a lot of folks in their sixties and seventies who have been put on statins, cholesterol drugs, blood pressure medicines, sometimes diabetes medicines. Usually, there's a heartburn medicine thrown in there. Mm-hmm. What I see is that their metabolism's very, very unhealthy looking. All the typical markers that we look at, uh, the triglycerides being high, the glucose being a little high, the insulin being high, those numbers are all out of whack because there's so much damage. And uh, you can reverse it, but it happens faster in some people than others just because of the fact that the body has to, in some cases, 
resurrect enzymes that haven't been used in decades, you know, some yeah. of the fat burn enzymes that haven't been used. And it, there's a lot of cleanup that has to be done to you. But one of the first things that you will see improving is the triglyceride level. And, and then there's a, a lag and um, the HDL, that can take six to 12 months to come up if somebody is at that point where they're on all those medications and they're in their 60s or so. That can take you know, a full year to come up. And it's, a, it's a, a year of, you don't have to be an angel with your food, but you just have to you know, really avoid those vegetable oils, get your sugar and carb consumption under control, get plenty of antioxidant vegetables and be a good exerciser too and get some, some decent sleep. Now... When people first go on on the bulletproof diet, which has a lot of commonality with your recommendations, it's you know high fat, no fear of saturated fats from clean, undamaged sources, you know, butter in your coffee, you know all about that, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. <laughs> so when people go on that, I usually within six weeks we'll we'll see, like you said, triglycerides drop, HDL goes up, but the big thing, C-reactive protein, uh, C-reactive protein homocysteine and LPPLA2 in most cases will drop unless there's a genetic thing going on with methylation, in which case you have to hack that. So that's kind of the six-week window. But I had a question I've been meaning to ask you, and I'm hoping you'll have an answer because I don't know it. I've noticed that when I first started doing this um, years ago, and really when I first got into Bulletproof Coffee, I was doing like five or eight tablespoons of, of butter in my coffee. I just loved it. I could not get enough. I'd, I'd add the, <laughs> the MCT oil and then I upgraded it to brain octane oil. Uh, and I, I just put it in there and, and I'm like, like, just give it to me. And if I went a day without butter, it was like a day without sunshine. I, I just I was unhappy. <laughs> but after about two years of that, I went down to two tablespoons. I just felt like my body's just urgent demand for butter went down. I'm still a high butter consumer, but on an average day in all of my food, I might have like four or five tablespoons instead of like 10 or 15. Why after a year or two did I downregulate my just rabid desire for butter? You didn't need it as badly. So that's a really good question. It's just like if you're deficient in something and you get, you replete yourself, mm-hmm. it's like taking vitamin D. Um, you know, if you start out with a vitamin D level of nine or some sort of uh, basement number like that, and then you take massive doses of vitamin D, you can get your vitamin D level up in three months and then you don't need those massive doses anymore. So you're just, you are just exquisitely sensitive to what your brain really wants. And, you know, uh, I find that it's possible for people to sense what they need, you know, and I'm always very impressed yeah. when people give me stories like that, where, where they're like, I just felt like I didn't need it anymore. And that's, that's so important because your body, like you alluded to your body and how you feel are the best markers of what your body is doing and how it's feeling and you know, what you need. You just have to free it up from any kind of addictions that would, that would blind your ability to be sensitive to that. So that's what one thing that uh, yet another benefit of getting off sugar is that you don't have that like mental, like, oh, just give me a little something sweet, you know, always buzzing, at least not as strongly. You know, I'm I'm sort of a recovered sugarholic and I still get that buzzing sometimes, but it's a lot less than what it usually or what it was. And I recognize it for for the devil that it is. So (laughs) pay attention to it. I've found that I when I cut my sugar consumption radically, I lost a lot of the cravings, but they didn't go away. When I increased the fat and particularly the, the brain octane, the sugar cravings went down even more. And now the biggest trigger for them is when I eat foods that are lacking in quality. And my understanding of the biochemistry behind that is that, well, 
when you eat something, say a mold toxin, which is much higher in some types of foods than others, uh, for instance, in some coffees versus others, that depending on how long it takes those toxins to make it to the liver, when they're in the liver and the liver is like, okay, I got to do something with these. What do I do with them? Well, I'd like to oxidize them. What's the fuel for oxidation? It's glucose. So all of a sudden, it'll grab on to what's, what's available and it's probably low if you're eating right in the blood and it'll push your blood sugar lower than normal, which can trigger a food craving in and of itself. Have you, have you come across that line of reasoning? I mean, this is something I'm putting in my, my new book, but I'm just asking a few experts about that ahead of time because it's very predictable for me in my own awareness of food and I'll measure it with laboratory results to say this stuff has toxins in it, this stuff doesn't when I eat this or this is two days old and it's slightly off and bam, there come the food cravings back. Yeah, I don't know exactly what the cause could be. Like what you've suggested makes sense. Um, another thing that could make some sense is that if your liver is busy dealing with these toxic molecules, then maybe there's some things that it should be doing, like, you know, stuff that has to do with hormones that you could feel very directly. You know, if your levels of various hormones fluctuate, you know, you can have energy drops or mood changes. Like thyroid, you know. thyroid or cortisol, something like that? Yeah, thyroid or um, other sex hormones or even just uh, the liver is involved in the metabolization of amino acids into serotonin and other brain peptides and stuff like that. And so uh, it's what you suggested in this are not incompatible with each other. You know, it's just the, the liver's busy doing, dealing with this toxic stuff and it can't really be busy doing the normal housekeeping that it's supposed to be doing to keep us feeling good. Okay, that makes total sense. Your liver has a lot of jobs. And one of the other things that particularly I wrote about in the Better Baby book was environmental toxins place a load on the liver and the kidneys and they affect our, our brain functioning. And if people are getting exposed to, say, lots of BPA, jet fuel, say when you're maybe a professional sports team flying all over the place, and just all the crap and I, you know, anti-flame retardant things in in beds and whatever else, how big of a load do you think that's putting on the livers of, say, pro athletes or the rest of us? And is that something that we can address nutritionally or with supplements or medicine? Like, is it even of concern for performance? I'm sure it's a concern for performance. It's kind of one of those things that's sort of, uh, that's just a drag down yeah. uh, on the body. And because it's so multifactorial, you know, it's going to, like you said, all those different objects, right? You've got to the, the water bottles and the plates and the utensils and the jet fuel and all these unavoidable things with different chemicals, right? So for, for me, it just kind of highlights the importance of making sure that you do just, I like to keep things as simple as possible, right? So, so rather than trying to figure out what supplement uh, might help this or that, because we don't have a lot of data at this point in time. We don't really have a lot of science. We have a lot of basic science that could lead us to, you know, design studies to see whether or not our ideas work. But at this point, there are really just ideas. And so I don't have, you know, it's so hard to get them to eat the healthy food. I just want to focus on that rather than having them also worry about supplements and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. So, so food before supplements is a basic rule. At, yeah, that's amen. it. Exactly. <laughs> okay. 
just because there's so much in food that that we can improve on and that you know a tastes good and and b we have so much more control over it rather than everything else in the environment and you know all the stuff with the cell phones and who knows what else is out there but it it does does just get to what we really need to do is have the off season <laughs> be as restorative as possible and um you know that's a whole different different ball of wax because a lot of the players aren't even with the Lakers anymore in the off season. And of course they're not at the practice facility and all this, but a, a lot of them do invest their own time, energy and get, you know, specialists to help them with better sleep and, you know, massage and all those kinds of things that help restore because toxins have been with us for a long time. You know, that's why we have livers partly because <laughs> you know, the liver has the technology to break down stuff that plants put into plants so that we don't yep. overeat the plants. So we just need to make sure we get plenty of sleep and all the basic vitamins and, and good exercise and good air and good water whenever possible. I couldn't agree more. I've been doing work lately with more rock stars, actually, <laughs> like Hollywood people right. and uh, some nutritional sorts of things and just around performance. And I found that taking things like activated charcoal with certain types of food that they feel better, they have more energy, or upregulating up the amount of glutathione in the body, and using food plus supplements, particularly when they're on a touring schedule, you know, when they're they're just you know riding on a bus for you know four to ten hours, playing in a smoky club all night, getting on a bus and doing it again and again and again, uh, that just shoring up the antioxidant defenses with supplements in order to have the energy to put it out on stage, it it matters, um, mm -hmm. but. From a from a pro athlete perspective, and I'm I'm just kind of guessing at parallels between what pro athletes do versus what um, what pro rock stars do, but I mean, is is there a, some subsegment of the Lakers or some other teams that you've come across where supplements are a major thing, or is it sort of they're not NSF listed? It's not okay. It's it's not cool. Like, what's the status of supplements in pro sports? from what you've seen? Well, most of the supplements are centered around like muscle building, you know, like okay. creatine and um, branch chain. That's that's mostly what is heavily pushed on, on them, right? They get, they get, you know, big boxes of the stuff sent to them for free. And so that's most of what they get. And then in terms of the supplements that we actually want, <laughs> you know, for us, since we do have the luxury of having a fairly extremely excellent diet. The, the, the supplements are down to a minimum, but we we select, we handpick those pretty carefully. But as far as like performance enhancers, that really just goes back to the, the muscle, you know, okay. protein powders and muscle building and some with the fat burn and stuff like this. But it's not really, it's not part of program that that we're doing it's just it's what other what i've seen other athletes being interested in asking about and having pushed on them just because there's so much of it out there got it yeah there's just like an incessant drum of of supplements that are pretty similar out there right and there's also the risk like if i take this will i will it flag me in some blood test somewhere and then all of a sudden you know my career is in jeopardy even though like all i did was take my creatine or whatever it was so i know that there's a level of sensitivity um i've also been talking with some of the mlb guys um lately and you know it's it's just tough for them to know okay i can eat a food and the supplements there's just a little bit of of fear around them so yeah 
<laughs> All right. <laughs> that makes sense. Then there's a couple other things. In one of your, in fact, in the article, uh, I think it was on ESPN about how you were working with the Lakers, you said something that, that stood out and you said that you wanted the players to get out of using the mindset of uh, food as fuel. And I, I translate that to, you know, calories aren't important. It's not about the number of calories. It's about the composition of the calories um, on the Bulletproof diet. Why do you say don't use food as fuel? Well, that kind of gets you into the wrong mindset. If, you, if you're thinking of food as fuel, you're thinking of just sort of what kind of junk can I throw into yeah. the fire to burn so that I have energy, right? That's, that's where this comes from. And, and that's, we do need energy. We have to make special considerations around getting energy for athletics. But the body, our bodies are built out of recycled, you know, compounds from other beings and <laughs> it's we can't just have that be sugar <laughs> for example <laughs> there's very little of our bodies is actually manufactured out of glucose you know most of it is uh, much more complex molecules and we have to have the the information in those molecules so i, I guess this gets back to the the idea that we've that we talk about in our book a little bit, where uh, back in the late 1800s, right about when I was born, <laughs> the, the first cookbook that talked about this sort of stuff came out. It was Fanny Farmer's cookbook. Yeah. Um, Fanny Farmer is now known only mostly for candy, but she was actually a full-fledged culinary uh, artist back in the day. And in the beginning of her book, she talks about how they recently discovered uh, that, you know, the human body is composed of proteid and carbohydrate and lipid substance. And she broke, the, she went ahead to break them down in the, uh, the content that they've discovered in, in human beings. And then they, she said, you know, based on that, we need to eat these three things. And, and that was the end of that. And so as if to say that as long as you're doing that, your body's going to be just fine. But the, the food that we eat is actually, it's so much more than that. And just to give you a concrete example of what I'm talking about, milk, right? The first food that most of us get. When milk fat globules are manufactured in the mammary gland of any, uh, any mammal, this humans, cows, it's wrapped in a double lipid bilayer. So a, a lipid bilayer is a membrane um, and every cell in our body is wrapped in one of those. Well, these are wrapped in two just because of the topography of how it has to exit the, the mammary gland. And embedded within that milk fat globule are all kinds of fancy little protein doodads. So they've got, they've got names uh, like lactoferrin and other, uh, other things. And we don't really know what they do. We think that what they do is to help the newborn's digestive system cells recognize this as nutrition and incorporate it directly. In other words, fuse the, the membranes so that it, it doesn't have to be, go, it doesn't have to go through the normal process of digestion. I, I'm laughing that you mentioned lactoferrin specifically because um, glutathione force, which is the glutathione that I make, we tag the liposome, which is, as you know, a, glo a globule of fat with a lactoferrin molecule. So it'll absorb using exactly that mechanism into the gut to escort a natural substance instead of a drug into the body. But it, how cool that, that you went there with breast milk. I, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm impressed. That's cool. 
So yeah, like your science mimics nature. I guess really it's the same same idea, right? It's just common sense, right? We come up with it, nature came up with it. Yeah, you can <laughs> cool. always copy nature before you're going to go out and like create some strange thing. <laughs> okay, so you were you were going on about uh, how this this double lipid bilayer in breast milk is out there, and and we add IgG, we add lactoferrin to this, and so how does this uh, relate to sort of modern nutritional things? Well, it doesn't, you know, because modern nutritional dialogue does not include any discussion around the potential information that is lost when we process foods. And I guess, I guess that's not truly accurate for me to say it doesn't relate. It does relate because that's part of the problem. And that's why you have, (laughs) you have specialists, you know, in nutrition saying there's no difference between pasteurized homogenized milk and, and raw unprocessed milk. Well, we know there's a huge difference. It, it looks different under a microscope. We've done yeah. things to it. That bilayer is there. That information is gone. And when you, another element of the information in milk that I just happen to know to know a lot about milk because uh, we, you know, it's a big part of uh, chapter seven in our book where we talk about the four pillars of world cuisine. But you know, we talk about raw being one of the pillars and raw milk included. Yeah. So, so milk proteins. Uh, we've got our caseins and we've got uh, what are the other ones? The um, the ones that the whey uh, proteins. The whey, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> the those are designed to do different things to the calf, right? So the whey protein gets absorbed more immediately because it doesn't coagulate. The casein gets absorbed later on when the animal's perhaps asleep. And the the intelligence behind the whole system is completely destroyed when we process milk. And so that you you have casein interacting with calcium in ways that make all the protein in there less valuable to the body than it was when nature manufactured it. So for someone listening to, to this, uh, maybe driving their car, they're thinking, okay, I can give up milk. I can drink industrial milk, maybe organic industrial milk that's been heated and homogenized, or I can like find someone with dreadlocks and buy um, grass-fed raw milk the same way that I do. What would you recommend they do? Uh, I recommend you do whatever it was within your comfort zone and doesn't take you too far out of your neighborhood, honestly, because it's it can be a stress, you know, hunting down this yeah. stuff. If you can't get, you know, raw milk and you want the same kind of quality, you can do pretty well with, there's raw milk cheeses, that those are legal mm-hmm. in, in pretty much every state, but those can be hard to find too. And so yogurt is kind of like a good compromise because even though it's manufactured from pasteurized milk, not always made from homogenized milk, the bacteria that, that ferment the milk into yogurt which is thicker, it has different amino acids in there, it has different um, sugars in there, it has different vitamins. It, it sort of upgraded the value of that, that processed milk and gets you closer to, to what your body really wants. So if you can get a good organic yogurt, um, Stonyfield, you know, to drop names from uh, my former uh, neighbors in New Hampshire when I lived there, they're, they're centered in New Hampshire. Stonyfield is great. Um, organic Valley uh, is another great brand. And those are available in like every health food store. And those are not grass fed though, right? Those are fed grains. And, and I mean, aren't there, they're missing CLA. Uh, are, you're okay with non-grass fed dairy as long as it's yogurt? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a compromise. It's it's not like something, if somebody wants the best of the best, that's not going to be what I recommend. But if you want something that's better than, you know, like a protein powder or... Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I see. What, okay. I, I have the idea of a spectrum in the Bulletproof diet. And it, it's yeah. the same thing. Would I recommend if you're going to have dairy, have yogurt before you have skim milk powder? Oh, for God's sake. Yes. Like a hundred thousand percent. Yes. Uh, but if you can go further into the you know, the grass-fed, full-fat, unhomogenized, uh, unpasteurized sort of realm, that's a better selection. But yeah, you're right. You can panic about it and just say, oh, you know, I can't eat anything because it's not perfect enough. And that's, you know, not particularly a healthy place to be either. Right. Yes. Because then, then you're just going to go back to doing what you were doing before because it just becomes too stressful to try to, um, you know, improve everything at once. You know, Gary Vee, the trainer for the Lakers, he has this phrase, which is chock full of wisdom and applicable to many areas of life, which is baby steps. Yep. Right. So th- th- we've we've tried to do that for the players because, you know, for them to go from nachos and, and fried chicken wings to a charcuterie tray, even just pronouncing the word charcuterie, <laughs> um, that didn't really feel like a, a baby step to them. So we, we had to do that in the context of doing everything else gradually. And so we, we get there, but it, it takes a while and we give them a lot of stuff that's very familiar, just a better version of it. Like we do have, you know, deep dish pizza on the plane, but it's made with healthy cheese and everything's organic and, the, and olive oil instead of whatever kind of junk you'd get from Domino's. So I noticed that you do have gluten and, you know, some other sources of dairy and things like that, even in recipes uh, on the, uh, on your website. What's uh, what's the rationale? Is it, is it is gluten one of those things? Well, I guess it's better you know, better you do it right with gluten versus doing it worse with potato chips or something. Or is gluten something that you're okay with? Well, yeah. So gluten is the, the protein component in wheat and mm-hmm. a lot of other grains. And I, I think when we talk about gluten being bad for us, I feel like there's a a little bit of maybe too much fear surrounding it so that when people are trying to enjoy their sushi, you know, they're not going to have kikoman soy sauce on it because it might have traces of gluten in it. And, and again, you know, we have to do what's reasonable. We have to do what makes sense, I think, to not just science, but also culture. And we don't want to ostracize ourselves. But the the bottom line is that I think when people go gluten-free and feel better, it's not because they've, in a lot of cases, it's not because they've cut out the gluten molecule, which is really an innocent bystander in all this. The problem with our grains is that we process them, right? Whole grains are what people consumed until very recently because there was no technology for milling. It requires a lot of force energy that could only be delivered in, you know, mills were people who were millers back when in the day before I was born this time, um, (laughs) you know, a thousand years ago, they were rich because milling was a high tech intervention. And, and that's crushes the grain. And um, Andrew Weil helped me understand this. Andrew Weil is, runs a website called Weil.com. Yeah, he, and, he wrote about Bulletproof he, Coffee a while back. I was kind of stoked. I was honored. Like Andrew Weil right, is like a, yeah. a maven and like an old school guy who knows about health. So yeah, I respect him a yeah, lot. Yeah, cool. so he's been studying nutrition from his perspective for a, a, you know, for a long time, for maybe three decades now. And, and he has, I think, a good kind of solid stance on where the trouble comes from. And, and really it comes from the processing. So we don't, nature doesn't make poisonous foods except for foods that, except for those poisons that it intends 
as immediate deterrence, right? Nature never intended for celiac disease to come around. That is that is a disease that develops, you know, it's a chronic degenerative disease. It's not going to keep people from eating gluten, or from eating wheat, right? Because there's no way for yeah. the person to make that connection. It doesn't make so, him feel sick, right? Yeah. So the when we crush the grains and we take those the layers that nature intended each with its specific design to preserve the the germ, to se- to sense the temperature changes, to sense the water changes, to to physically change in response to changes in the environment. That's what gluten is supposed to do. It's not this molecule that's this like time bomb out there waiting to try and kill us. And the only reason it acts that way for some people is because we process it. And when we process protein, alter them, when we consume these altered proteins in a pro-inflammatory environment, our body makes antibodies to them. So that's, that's one of the main ways in which gluten is harmful to people. There's other ways which, that we can go into that have to do with, you know, leaky gut and all this sort of stuff. But really any protein can, lots of proteins can do that, not just gluten. So uh, Lots of them can, but I mean, don't gluten and casein uh, have like an eight amino acid sequence that tends to be cross-identified with seven different types of tissues, including like the lining of your arteries, your brain, your joints, things like that. Uh, by the way, I reverse my Hashimoto's by avoiding gluten scrupulously and avoiding mold toxins at the same time. Zero antibodies to it. Yes, you're absolutely right. But the reason that your body made those antibodies was because it made a mistake. It, it's not supposed to. There's other proteins yeah. out there in the world that could cause and do cause those same kinds of reactions. Mm-hmm. But your body's supposed to recognize that it made an antibody that is, A, no longer needed to fight off an infection because there was no infection, and B, is attacking its own tissues. And so... There's something called, oh shoot, what is the term? (laughs) It's antibody deletion, immune tolerance, that's the term. So when you become tolerant to something that you were formerly, uh, you had an allergic reaction to, that's because you formerly had an antibody to it, and then your body can actually delete that antibody. So it, it remembers to stop making that antibody, to no longer make it. And that needs to happen in order for... And, and that happens in the memory B cell. And is there a way you recommend for people to suddenly become not gluten intolerant? <laughs> well, I don't know that it would be. I don't know that it would be sudden. Okay, to to gradually become. I mean, there's lots of people yes, who would like to eat absolutely, pizza again. Like, absolutely, absolutely. the beans you, here. Once you, you probably need to. I mean, I think it's essential to eliminate the allergen, right? So mm-hmm. whether you're allergic to wheat, gluten, or other proteins in wheat, or milk protein, or other proteins in milk, or eggs, or peanuts, or whatever it is, you need to eliminate that for a period of time, probably six months. And you also need to eliminate other things in your diet that are going to promote inflammation. So this is where we get back to the the high sugar intake and the vegetable oils. Because inflammation in your intestine is where your immune system first starts to make mistakes. And so if you're having these pro-inflammatory foods, the vegetable oils and the sugars, you are inevitably going to develop an antibody to something that your body really shouldn't make an antibody to and that can cross-react. And so so if you get those things out of your life and eliminate the offending protein for long enough, your body has the potential to reverse it. Now, not everyone's will, but I've just heard plenty of stories where, where people had been allergic or had had intolerances and were really good about their diets and these things did reverse. But like yeah. I say, 
not everyone's will. So you have to be very ginger and very cautious if you're going to reintroduce one of those foods. It definitely is something I've seen too, where people are allergic, they avoid something for a while and then they come back. And there's even a recent study about peanut protein and how they're able to turn down an anaphylactic response. But there are also studies with gluten where they talk about in people without celiac, without an immune response to it, where it lowers cerebral blood flow. This is particularly gluten and gliadin together. And I, I reached the conclusion where gluten doesn't have a place in the very highest performing diets uh, for, for people out there. This is my conclusion. We, we may end up disagreeing at the end of the day, which is totally cool. But that there are some people who tolerate Kikoman soy sauce much better than others. But if you're one of the people with an immune reactivity, you have to religiously avoid it. And if you are one of the people who tolerates it, it will not benefit you more than eating a piece of grass-fed steak. So if you're going to pick a protein, you might as well eat a, a pastured egg or a piece of grass-fed steak or something else like that when you have a choice. And if you're starving yeah, and all they have is biscuits and you're not going to eat for three more days, like load up on the biscuits. By the way, that goes if you have an immune intolerance too. You're starving, right? Like it's better not to die and be inflamed. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? Um, I should mention that on our website, we have under Watch Dr. Kate on video, we have a video about this whole process of immune tolerance with, with a little cartoon version of the white blood cells and the antibodies that, that helps people. Uh, it, it helps to illustrate exactly this sort of complex discussion that we're having here surrounding immune tolerance. I mean, it's pretty high level stuff, but I tried to, it's a five minute video and we have cartoons in there. So it. Uh, all right. We'll link to it in the show notes so people oh, can find great. it. There's a couple more questions I want to ask you. I, I know that you've got to get in a couple minutes. Number one, intermittent fasting, good or bad? I think it's a, absolutely a huge, potentially beneficial tool to have in your kit box. And the reason has to do with A, the, all the research that we've seen surrounding it, and B, just the fact that we know that there would have been times in our ancestral past where food would be limited and we'd have to go uh, you know, unwillingly through periods of hunger where, where we live off of our fat. And that's why we store fat too, right? Is so that we can go through these periods of hunger where we live off of our fat. And so presumably there's all kinds of resets, you know, metabolic resets that can occur when you do something dramatically different like that. I see it as a kind of like, you know, we talk about cross training with exercise. You want to do like aerobic cardio endurance. You want to do high intensity interval training. It, it's the same kind of Variety with nutrition and diet surrounding meal timing, I think, is is beneficial as well. Okay, that was a, a super clean answer. Uh, we totally uh, we totally see it the same way. I <laughs> I found intermittent fasting for me was transformative, and the fact I can fly somewhere for ten hours and just not care about food is so liberating. It's amazing. Yes, absolutely. And the final, well, second to final question is about collagen. What's your take on collagen, bone broth, the importance of eating collagen? Oh, well, it's one of the four pillars in our book, Deep Nutrition, um, and the, the the third pillar, actually, meat on the bone. And uh, the, the meat on the bone refers to the traditional practice of making broth using 
bone, joint material, skin. And what that does is it extracts these molecules called glycosaminoglycans in addition to collagen hydrolysates. And it's really a missing food group from the American diet because every other culture around the world does this sort of stuff on a regular basis and gets infusions of these molecules that are uniquely capable of stimulating the cells in the body called fibroblasts that lay down collagen. Collagen is the backbone of our bones, our ligaments, our skin. And so it's almost like vitamin C, you know, in that we, our ancestors gave us this stuff. Now we need it. We can't make it anymore. Well, it's actually made out of vitamin C, come to think of it, because vitamin C is one of the main components of healthy collagen, right? <laughs> I just thought of that. You need, you actually, well, yes, uh, um, you absolutely need vitamin C to manufacture collagen. That's, and, that's, and if you it, eat it, if you eat it, does your body break it down and remanufacture it, or can you use the dye and tripeptides directly? You actually, you, you may break some down, but... There was a really cool study I saw where they radio labeled glycosaminoglycan compounds Ooh. and fed them to mice with injured joints, and they saw that it passed through um, undigested through the digestive tract and ended up in the joints. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. So I, I don't know if you've checked out uh, the upgraded collagen, but we do a, a skin-based collagen from grass-fed cows that's enzymatically processed to keep the peptides intact for the reasons that, that you're just discussing. Uh, and it's something that I put in my coffee about half the time because it doesn't have any real flavor. So you just put it in oh. when I, with the butter and all of a sudden you're like, bam, like bone broth coffee is gross, but this stuff tastes pretty good. <laughs> so, <laughs> by the way, I have tried homemade bone broth coffee only once. It was truly horrible. <laughs> you will put anything in your coffee, won't you? Uh, except, is there anything you haven't put in coffee? <laughs> except liver. That was just not okay. I've done a raw liver smoothie and that was the most horrible thing I've ever had in my life. Um, but I did finish it, except that one string that got caught. Anyway. <laughs> All right. There's, there's a question that I ask everyone who's been on the show, Dr. Kate, and it's what are your top three recommendations for people who want to kick more ass? So if you care about performance in your life, what, what do you have to teach them? Not just from your book, not just from your practice, but everything you've ever learned as a human being. Give us the three most important pieces of advice. Okay, well, breakfast is the most important meal of the day to not screw up, right? So, so <laughs> don't have carbs for breakfast. Yay. You don't necessarily have to eat breakfast, but your first meal of the day should not be carb-rich unless, you know, it's, it's after exercise. That's the second point. You want to make sure that you work up a good appetite as many days of the week as possible because when you work up that appetite that's your body hungering for nutrition and when you give it nutrition your body can rebuild muscles joints tendons in ways that it can't possibly do without working up that appetite and three is restore restore however you do it whether it's going for a walk whether it's getting an extra hour of sleep our immune systems that now, you know, we get into so much trouble when they make mistakes. They do figure out their mistakes while we sleep. They really can't do it while we're awake. They, they, that's one of the main functions of sleep is for the immune system to figure out what's good and what's bad, what needs to be eliminated, and what's, what's friend and what's foe, including cancer. Well, that's a, a pretty impressive list. And uh, <laughs> uh, you were the first person to say, 
Um, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, not to screw up. I mean, could, I, I'm always telling people, what? You, you gave your kids carbs for breakfast and you want them to perform at school? Like, stop that. My kids are eating eggs, bacon, and butter for breakfast and drinking a little tiny cup of Bulletproof coffee. And they're like, snacks? Why would we have oh, snacks? It's only 10 o'clock. Like, it, it's just... You know, they're my son's four, you know, but but look, really, they're they have snacks for social reasons instead of for I'm crashing and I'm going to misbehave reasons. So it's, <laughs> it's so cool to hear you say that. So if you're listening right now and you got that piece of advice, don't eat carbs in the morning. Amen. Like that is such an awesome thing to reach the top three. So, Dr. Kate, right. you know what you're talking about. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That is definitely high praise coming from an expert like yourself. Oh, thanks. Uh, Will you please tell our listeners where they can find more info out about you, uh, your URL and things like that? We'll put all these in the show notes, but people are oftentimes driving or they're listening on their mobiles or whatever else. So uh, this is the number one ranked health podcast, uh, almost 5 million downloads now. So a few people are going to hear about you and they should check out your stuff. Well, thank you so much for having me, uh, Dave. So my, my website is drkate.com and doctor is dr. C-A-T-E dot com. And I have uh, some services that I'm launching there. Actually, they're, they're listed on the website now in conjunction with Mark Sisson, who runs Mark's Daily Apple. Oh, he was um, just on the podcast last week or something. So cool. Oh, great timing. Yeah. So it's going to be, um, it's called the Primal Advantage. And it's really a metabolic coaching service. And what we're going to be doing is evaluating what so your six aspects of your metabolism. So for for example, nervous system, immune system, connective tissue health, cardiovascular to others. And we were doing this with blood testing and history. And then we're going to identify where the strengths and weaknesses are and come up with a plan for what to do to optimize your metabolic function. And that's going to be available for people all around the country and possibly even out of the country. That'll be finalized in the next few weeks. It's going to be launching on April 1st. And you can find that on Mark's website as well under his services section. Very cool. Thanks again and have an awesome day. Thank you. Thanks. So. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Dave. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.